This evening's reading is taken from Haggai, chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, and that can be found on page 949. That's Haggai, chapter 2, reading from verses, from verse 20, page 949. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of, of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, son of Shaltiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Thank you very much, Brenda, for reading for us. Do please keep your Bibles open at Haggai 2. And as we come to God's Word, let us pray together. Let's pray. Father, where we are proud, we ask that your Word would humble us. And Lord, where we are hungry, we pray that your Word would fill us with good things. In Jesus' name, amen. There are some stories that made the news this week. Story number one, a six-year-old boy was abused for the whole of his life and eventually killed by someone who should have been caring for him. Story number two, lifeboats were prevented, prevented from rescuing those in peril in the English Channel. Story three, there are reports of those in power allegedly breaching rules they imposed on others while people were dying of COVID. Don't these things just want you, make you want to cry out for justice? There's a, a really good film called Changeling, stars um, Angelina Jolie, and she plays a mother whose son has gone missing. And the police turn up, they claim to have found her young son, and they return the boy to his mother. The only problem is, the boy they return is not the lady's son. Everyone tries to convince her that he, he is her son, but he's not. And the story goes on and on with her search for justice, for the wrong that's been done. Uh, at several points, if you watch it, it just gets your inner sense of right and wrong and justice really going. It makes you want to cry out as a viewer and say, stop, that's not fair, that shouldn't be happening. Have you ever felt that kind of feeling about something you've seen, either in real life or, or on a film, maybe. But there's a great period towards the end of that film where the culprits are brought to justice. There's an inquiry, the whole story is played out, and in the end, the judge administers justice and punishment for the wrongdoers. Don't we get really restless when justice is not done? And don't we get a real relief, a sense of peace when justice is done and is seen to be done. 
Well, despite all of our brokenness as human beings, our sense of justice that we have is a good thing. It's been put there by a good God, a just God, as he's made us in his image. Now, in this world, we know just through our own experience that not every wrongdoer is brought to justice. And not all justice is always appropriate to the misdemeanor either. But what we read in the Bible is that there is a God who is perfectly just and holy and righteous. He will one day judge the world and he will do it perfectly. Nothing that anyone has ever done will ever be hidden from his sight. Everything will be accounted for by the God who is full of glory. And we see God's glory revealed in in different ways in the Bible. We see it in the way that he brings judgment upon those who reject him and reject his plans for the world. But we also see it in the way that he rescues people through that judgment. God is glorified as he saves people through that judgment. In a sense, the message of the whole Bible is a story of God gaining glory for himself by saving people through judgment. It's a good summary of the Bible story. And as we pick up the story in Haggai's day, the the Old Testament is coming to a close. The people of Israel, they were meant to reflect God's glory to the nations around them, but they are very much not what they once were. Haggai's brought God's word to them, encouraging them, challenging them to build God's house. God has promised earlier in chapter 2 that he will fill this new house with glory, that he's going to cleanse his people, that he's going to bless them. And so the people are getting on with that knowledge, with that promise, and they're getting on with the job of building the temple. But it would be fair to say that plenty of challenges remained for Israel. They were operating out of a place of weakness, not of strength. Many would have lost Loved ones, homes in the exile, certainly a sense of identity and a feeling of who they understood themselves to be. They were always looking over their shoulder at the powerful nations around and about them. They were tempted to give up the building work because all these superpowers around, well, they just didn't like it when Jerusalem flourished and grew. They wanted to squash that, uh, and from time to time they tried to. And Israel must have had doubts about the future as well about how exactly God would bring about his plans for greater glory, when actually they were still reeling from him removing his glory from them as a people as they went into exile. And so as they look around at the nations who seek to oppose them, and as they look within in their own hearts at their own defilement and sinfulness, What will keep such a people going in building God's house? Well, they need to know, as as well as we today as God's people, we need to know two things, the answer to two questions. Firstly, will anybody be judged by God? And secondly, will anybody be saved by God? Will anyone be judged by God and will anyone be saved by God? Is there a God out there who will judge the world in righteousness? If you don't believe that, I think you've got more reasons to despair of this world than people who do believe that. And if there is a God who will judge the world in righteousness, then what hope do any of us have? 
What are this God's standards? How can any of us measure up? Do any of us escape his judgment? Well, this final word of the Lord through Haggai is a message of hope for God's people. It's a message to and about one man, Zerubbabel. And through what is said to him, uh, we very much hear that God's plans to save a people through judgment are alive and well. We're going to see what these verses teach us both about judgment and about salvation and how we should respond to God revealing his plan here. So firstly, from the first paragraph, point one, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Looking at verses 20 to 22 there. Let me read them for us again. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. Now, if you've been around the last few weeks, you'll know we've met this idea of shaking already in Haggai. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 taught us that there's going to be a day when God will judge all things. There's going to be a great shakedown. And the things that looked so secure and powerful and impressive and worth trusting in and appealing, many of them won't survive. In fact, only only things that God builds will survive. Only his house, which is his people, only God's house will survive. Now, if you know your Bible well, you you might know that from time to time that, that future judgment that God has promised will take place now and again God decides that he's going to let it invade the present, that he's going to deal with something there and then. And the word here in verse 22 seems to be more of an immediate promise to Zerubbabel, that in some way God's going to deal with the surrounding nations that right there and then are threatening to oppress Israel. And so the message for them is that the people and and Zerubbabel as the governor, they need not fear the nations around them as they get on with the task of building God's house. God will deal with those who oppose him and his people. And I think we get hints here in the language, again, like we've seen before in Haggai, that God has a history of doing just this. Just like he he has a track record of making a glorious people out of very little, out of very humble beginnings, so he has a track record of overthrowing all who defy him, all who oppress his people. So this language here in verse 22, it it sounds a lot like what happened when Israel was saved through the Red Sea at the Exodus, and Pharaoh and his armies were drowned. There we read in um, the Song of Moses and Miriam, Exodus 15, uh, that chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders, God hurled them into the sea in, in judgment. See, the nation back then and the the leader back then, Pharaoh, who seemed so powerful, he was overthrown. His armies were overthrown. God shattered their power. He's done it before. He can do it again. And one day he will do it fully and finally. So, Christian believer, brother, sister, why should we keep going and building God's house? 
And the encouragement from the end of Haggai here is that we, we should keep going in, in building God's house and making disciples of the Lord Jesus. And we can keep going even when that is tough. And as we saw last week, we can keep going in, in fighting our sin and living holy and godly lives because judgment is coming. And that puts everything in perspective. God says, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. He will deal with all who oppress his people, with all who oppose him. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not someone uh, whose faith is in Jesus, you wouldn't say, I belong to Jesus, I'm living my life for Jesus' plans. Then let me ask you, what, what do you make of this language about God's justice and God's judgment? Do you feel that's a, a good thing, or are you disturbed by that? Remember those scenarios I mentioned at the start, just from the, the newspapers this week? And we could add to them, perhaps, just if we, in our heads, scan through history at all the the horrific uh, abuses and crimes and oppression that human beings have been guilty of over the years. As we think about all those things, aren't you glad that one day God will judge the world perfectly and that nobody will get away with anything? That's a good thing. We know it's going to happen because God says it here in his word. And and we can read of times like in Haggai's day and in Moses' day in the Exodus where God has demonstrated his power to judge all who oppose him. Don't you agree that's a good thing, that there will be a day of reckoning, a day of shaking, a, a day of judgment with perfect justice? I think deep down, instinctively, all of us want that to happen. But the question is then, Where do we find ourselves in all of that? Where will we sit in the great shakedown on the day of judgment? At this point, we like to play our comparison games and say, well, you know, we're pretty okay people, really. Yes, I know I'm no saint, but I'm not an evil, murderous dictator either. So I think that God, on balance, will be happy with me on the day of judgment. If you think like that, I would beg you not to believe such foolish lies. The God who judges all people, he he does not grade on some sort of curve. He doesn't look for above average people. He doesn't have a a pass mark of righteousness that any of us can uh, attain. Sorry. His his standards, his glory, his his purity, his holiness is out of reach for all of us. Because all of us together, collectively as humanity and, and individuals, we've all rejected him. We've all sinned against him. We have sought to to push him and his glory down and, and squash it. We want to push God and his glory so far down that we think we can ignore it completely. And we've raised ourselves up instead with hearts that are proud and a very nature that says, you know what, God, I'm going to be the one who decides what's right and wrong. Thanks very much. I think I'll live fine without you. 
Well, God, the judge of all, searches every heart of every person. And we may not be like these in verse 21 who sit on royal thrones and rule over kingdoms, but in your little world and in my little world, who's the boss? Who's in charge? Who's the king or queen? Who wears the crown? When the angel comes to Mary before that first Christmas and tells her of the saviour that is to be born, Mary responds with a wonderful song that speaks of God's mercy for his people and his judgment on his enemies. You can find it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, if you want to read it later. Let me read a few verses from it to you. Mary sings, God's mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Some interesting words in the middle there. Those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Is that you? Are you calling the shots in your life, or are you submitting to... God, the judge of all through his word. However much you and I dress up our our good deeds and our bad deeds, at the end of the day, there's only room for one on the throne. And so all who are proud and refuse to cry out to God to rescue them will one day be scattered, will one day be shaken and judged fully and finally with no escape, with no second chance. God, the creator of all, judges all who oppose him and his purposes. Now, as as Christian believers, as those keen to see people trust Jesus today, we should be comforted by that. It means that we can work with confidence in the task that God has given us to do in proclaiming the good news, in in making disciples of Jesus, in building one another up into the spiritual house where God lives. As we do that, we need not fear those who might threaten that mission, be it on our doorstep or around the world, perhaps, where threats are, are more pronounced, more obvious. One day, all who oppose God and his people will be overthrown. And so we, even today, can continue to serve our God with reverence and awe, for we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Judgment is coming, and I think we know that's a good thing. But the even better news, the greater news that we hear through this word to Zerubbabel is that, secondly, a saviour has come. A saviour has come. That's point two, verse 23 there. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Those three words that kick off that verse, on that day, are uh, used a lot by God through his prophets Uh, When he speaks to his people, that day refers to a day when God's going to intervene, when he's going to do something to judge those who oppose him and raise up those whose hope is in him. 
And the piece of God's plan that's revealed for us here is that those things are going to happen. They're going to be accomplished through this man, Zerubbabel. God is going to take Zerubbabel and he's going to bring about his plans through him. Now, did you notice how Zerubbabel is described here? The Lord says of him, he is my servant, Zerubbabel. Now, this is significant. God's not just saying that Zerubbabel was a a good chap who generally served me. He, He probably was that. But this title, my servant, was specifically given to one figure in the Old Testament. It was given to the great king of Israel, King David, uh, and others that would come from his line in his image, if you like, were to be God's servant, the servant of the Lord. And so Israel were looking for someone who would come from the line of David, who would be this servant of the Lord, the servant. So, for example, the the prophet Ezekiel records God saying to his people, I'm going to place over you one shepherd, my servant, David. And so that that promise of God's servant is is there in the Old Testament. And the point here is that Zerubbabel is is identified as, as the one who in some small way fits that description. He's going to bring the the one who is going to be the ultimate servant of God. Now remember, in Haggai's day, Israel were reeling. They'd been in exile. They had no recognized king. Uh, Throughout Haggai, we read that Zerubbabel is not the king. He's the governor. And and I think we, we get God's plans reinforced by what, he says next to Zerubbabel, this language of the the signet ring in this last verse here, which sounds strange to us, but is really quite wonderful once we get into it. Uh, God says to Zerubbabel, I will make you like my signet ring. Now, the the signet ring, I don't know if you've ever seen one. It's a a ring with a sort of big stamp on. It's a personalized emblem of the ruler, the king. So it was a symbol of his ownership and authority. It was like the king's official signature. And so whoever was given this ring by the king held the king's authority. They wielded his power. They were his representative. So that's the the signet ring. Now, this isn't the first time a prophet has talked about the signet ring in connection with God's people, and indeed the exile. So Jeremiah spoke God's word Uh, just before the exile to the king of Judah, Jehoiakim. And he said this, this is the Lord speaking, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I will deliver you into the hands of those who want to kill you, those you fear, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and the Babylonians. I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country where neither of you were born, and there you both will die. So that was the last thing Israel had heard about the signet ring. God had taken it off his hand, and he chucked it to Babylon. And with it went the hopes of his people to see his promise to David fulfilled. But now, here, through Zerubbabel, 
The plan that was off the rails is now back on track. The signet ring has returned. And as we've seen time and again in, in Haggai, it's, it's God, it's the Lord himself who's going to accomplish this. So just look at verse 23 again. God says, I will take you. I will make you. I have chosen you, declares the Lord. Now, Zerubbabel was no doubt a, a good guy. He was an influential figure in Haggai's day. He did lead the people with Joshua in getting on with the task God had given them to do. But there's no indication that all of the glorious promises that God speaks of here are fulfilled in Zerubbabel. Rather, we need to see how these promises are, are given and fulfilled not so much to Zerubbabel, but, but through Zerubbabel. He will never serve as, as king in Israel. Remember, he's, he's the governor. But as we read on in, in the Bible, in God's great story of salvation through judgment, we do see these promises fulfilled in one of Zerubbabel's descendants. Now, keep your Bibles open and just flick forward with me from, from Haggai. If you're using the church Bibles, I think it's about eight flicks. Um, Matthew chapter 1, the first chapter in the, in the New Testament. Here we read of the, the genealogy of, of Jesus, Jesus' family tree. It begins, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the signet ring section of this genealogy is found in verses 11 to 13. So in Matthew 1, verse 11, we read of Jeconiah, which was another name for Jehoiakim. A little bit confusing, but it's the same guy. He was the signet ring that was taken off and thrown into Babylon. And then there's that, that break in, in, in the Bible there where the verse sort of is marked out. And the promises seem off the rails for 70 years or so. But then verse 12, after the exile to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. That rings a bell. We've read of him in Haggai. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. The plan is back on track, and it's fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah. And he fulfills not just the, the figure of Zerubbabel in Haggai, but he fulfills all of God's plans that we've been reading about in Haggai. Jesus is born in, in Bethlehem, just the place where the Old Testament said the promised Messiah would be born, the one who people should look for and look to when he arrived. Remember, in Haggai's day, the people were rebuilding the temple so that they could worship God through the ministry of the priests. However, as we saw last week, the people were far from holy. But then Jesus comes, descendant of Zerubbabel, and he lives his life utterly devoted to God and his priorities. And he fulfills everything that those priests and that temple pointed towards. Jesus himself is that greater glory that God spoke of in chapter 2, verse 9. He is glory made flesh, 
So the gospel writer John could say, and we sang it earlier, we have seen his glory. Again, chapter 2, verse 9 of Haggai says that this glory of the new meeting place, the new house, would be greater than the glory of the former temple. Now Solomon's temple was, was glorious, there was gold everywhere. But Jesus arrives and says, one greater than Solomon is here. And so today, getting right with God, coming to God in worship and faith today, it happens not by going to a temple or any other physical location, however wonderfully built they might be. No, it happens for anyone and for everyone who comes by coming to Jesus. He is the Lord of glory. He is the one who has come from the Father, full of grace and truth. So if you haven't already, come to Jesus. Put your life in his hands. Keep coming to Jesus. Worship God, the judge of all, through Jesus, his Son, who offers salvation. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, when your faith is in Jesus, when you make Jesus your king, when you give him the throne of your heart and your life and and the center of who you are, then you can know with absolute certainty that all the judgment you deserve for your sin, for your proud heart, for your rejection of God, for everything that flows from that, all that has been paid for by Jesus. All your ongoing struggles with sin that you'll continue to battle with, that has been paid for by Jesus. By trusting Jesus, you can know that you have crossed over from death to life and that you will not come into judgment. Because Jesus himself, the Lord of glory, he humbled himself. He bled and died And bore God's wrath for sinners in your place, on your behalf. If that's you, if you're trusting in him, then there is no judgment to come. There is no judgment to fear. It is finished. Your sin has been paid for. Jesus has done it. And he fulfills all these things that Haggai points us towards. So now he sends us out as his people to make more followers of him. Followers who are going to be living stones that God is building into a spiritual house where he dwells. And one day Jesus will return. He will come again. He will shake the heavens and the earth. Those who have not turned from their sin will be judged fully and finally. Those who have turned and trusted in Jesus will be brought forevermore into a place of perfect peace where the Lord God himself and Jesus the Lamb fulfill everything that the temple points towards and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. So as church, let us work for that greater glory that is to come. Let us be holy people because there's, 
there's a day coming when sin will be no more. Let's not grow weary and disillusioned by the state of things. Jesus the Messiah, he, he has the signet ring. He will take us safely home. His plans will never be thwarted. And so this Christmas, let's make much of Jesus. Amidst the news headlines, amidst the, the tragedies, the injustice, the sin on display, the talking points around the table... And as we cope with our own uncertainties and the inability to plan anything and difficulties in family life and the general brokenness of this world and our own hearts, let's make much of Jesus. Let's keep living for him and, and telling others about him because Jesus is where God's glory is seen. He is the one full of grace and truth. He is the judge who has come as the Savior. So judgment is coming. You better believe it. But know this too, with absolute certainty, a Savior has come in Jesus. So run to him. Put, put your life in, in his hands. Trust him as your Savior and King. And if you've done that, then let's together keep building his house, for we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let's pray. Lord God, your mercy extends to those who fear you. Father, as we respond uh, to your word tonight, we pray that you would work in our hearts that... Uh, we would be those who humble ourselves and are assured of your mercy. Lord, in this time of Advent, may our hearts be fixed on your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And we thank you and praise you in his name. Amen.